Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. It's also the story of the Gospels, and I find it interesting in the Gospels, there's, it's like the trajectory of Christ's life. The whole thing leads up to the resurrection, but the, re- the part, the resurrection is very, very short, in, right? There's a long story, a long lead up. He dies, he's resurrected, and then it ends. And I think, um, and that's kind of the way my book Parched went, not because the story is over, but because the story is really just beginning which is true of the resurrection. It's ongoing. And in a sense, we continue to complete the story or let the, let the story unfold in us. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is Season 2, Episode 14. Several months ago, I was reading an article by the Catholic priest Ron Rollheiser when he mentioned the name of an author with whom I was not familiar. Every person in recovery from an addiction, wrote Rollheiser, needs to read Heather King. I was intrigued, so I googled Heather's work and became even more intrigued by her theological reflections on addiction and recovery, her spiritual passion, and her humor. Within a month, I had read virtually all of her work. Heather King is a writer, speaker, retreat leader, and former commentator on NPR's All Things Considered. Her bio reads, If you're interested in what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now, I write books about my stumbling, tragicomic journey, which is, roughly, born and raised on the coast of New Hampshire, 20 years as a hardcore drunk, sobered up, moved west, had a spiritual crisis as a Beverly Hills lawyer, quit my job, started writing, converted, and took my first communion at the Church of the Blessed Sacrament in Hollywood. Then, the hard part began. Those books that Heather mentions include Parched, a memoir, Redeemed, Stumbling Toward God, Marginal Sanity, and the Peace that Passes All Understanding, and Shirt of Flame, a year with St. Therese of Lisieux. Join me now for part one of my lively conversation with Heather King. Heather King, I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for being on the Restoring the Soul podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. You described yourself on your website as, I'm an ex-barfly Catholic convert, and I'm proud. 
I write, speak, give retreats, edit, and clean bathrooms. And I've never read a bio quite like that before. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, I like to get in that uh, I'm I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've now been sober almost thirty years, as of as of May eighth. Knock on wood. Um, but because it's so central to my how I came to God, how I came to the Catholic Church, um, this kind of well-educated white woman who came up against something against which my intelligence and my willpower availed me absolutely nothing. It's a great, great blessing. And I think the I'm proud is just, you know, we get to be gay and proud. We get to be atheist rising and proud. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm proud in a sort of funny way just to be who I am, this very ordinary, uh, very fallen person. And I found my way to my vocation of writing. I worked for a time as a lawyer. I found my way to this vocation as a creative writer, uh, not insanely lucrative. And the, and the clean bathrooms is kind of... Uh, I've, I don't have the money, for instance, to hire a housekeeper. Um, so it's kind of, I think all of that points to just this kind of, as I call it, everyday mysticism, this life that's shot through, very ordinary, outwardly unremarkable life shot through with gratitude and and the glory of God. <laughs> and so speaking of the glory of God, and already you've referred to your pilgrimage out of addiction into embracing the Catholic Church and its spirituality, you wrote in your book, Redeemed, I, I absolutely loved this line. You said on your journey, one of the things that led you to faith was that you couldn't get your mind around a God who ruled by such apparent powerlessness. Tell me about that. Well, again, that arises largely, or initially at least, out of my experience of being a broken-down alcoholic. I mean, a low-down, down-and-dirty barroom drinker with a law degree, actually technically a lawyer. I had gone to law school, graduated with honors, passed the Massachusetts bar, and I was drinking daily morning drinker uh, in bars. So, um, And what I found was my family finally had an intervention. They sent me off to a treatment center. Um, and what I found at that treatment center were other women like me, wide spectrum. Uh, not all, some people had an eighth grade education. Some were better educated than me. All different sexual orientations, social demographic. But we were, what we had in common was this brokenness. We're alcoholics. We can't stop drinking by ourselves. And out of that, and I saw how we, we broken people could help each other out of our poverty in a way that the people with clipboards and degrees and certificates could not. Out of our poverty, this is deeply, deeply Christ-like and Catholic, that out of the poverty, our shared poverty, the widow who gives her last two mites, comes the richness. That is where the kingdom of God is. And I was absolutely compelled by that. Uh, and it's not the poverty of, oh, let's sit around and tell dirty jokes and drinking stories. It's the, it's, you have to have as your goal to come higher, to get better, to become more awake. Um, but within that, when you share um, the, the feelings and, and your experiences and then your strength and hope as you get better, that's, 
that is the only solution I have found to this deadly, deadly disease. And um, I just find it remarkable. It's a disease against which science um, basically has availed nothing. Science has not solved the mystery of alcoholism. But, but weirdly, this very unlikely fellowship that I found where we kind of share our, our poverty and our desire for transcendence in a way um, has been the solution. So that's kind of what um, the powerlessness uh, Christ, who says on the eve of his crucifixion, do you not think that I could I could call legions of angels to come and save me, but who consents to become one of us? Deeply, deeply. Uh, who can fathom that? And in your book, Parched, which is uh, a book about your journey of uh, pr- primarily about the depth of your alcoholism and your addiction and your brokenness, but also in the last section, the redemption and the recovery, you were brutally, brutally honest. And there were parts of reading that were just excruciating because uh, as the reader, I, I just saw you in such tremendous pain and brokenness, was it hard for you to be so honest and so laid bare as you wrote that and as the book came out? No, it actually wasn't. Um, For one thing, I'd been sober 18 years when I wrote that book. I did not write a book about addiction and and, um, my sort of um, arising from the ashes of it for quite a long time until I really felt I had something to say about it. Um, so for one thing, I was quite far removed from the um, the, the kind of degradation uh, and corruption uh, that I wrote about in the book. Also, there, there. I mean, I'm honest, I hope, but I'm not. Uh, there are certain things I would never, ever write about. For instance, the specifics of, you know, I'm very clear about, yeah, I was this barfly, I was super promiscuous, but I would never actually write about, like, this sexual act, which would absolutely, I would just spontaneously burst into, I mean, there's no, there's no purpose in that. The purpose of writing about the things that I did in that book was to say, this, there is a God so great that I have been delivered from that. I don't have to, I'm not sentenced to act that way anymore. And so the whole book, and I hope everything I write, even though I clearly write memoir and about my personal experiences, it's it's not to point to me, it's to point to something greater than me. So in that sense, no, it was a huge love letter and thank you letter to the world, to God, to my family. Yeah, I didn't experience that book as either exhibitionistic or self-indulgent. It really did draw toward this this end all throughout parts i was like okay 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 we're gonna we're gonna hear the the end of the story and the story ends well obviously yeah i mean it's interesting you really learn to tell a story what once you've you're you're recovering from drinking you know what what happened or rather what it was like what happened what it's like now that's the arc of a story and i think it's also the story of the gospels and i find it interesting in the gospels there's it's like the trajectory of Christ's life. The whole thing leads up to the resurrection, but the re- the part, the resurrection is very, very short. In right, there's a long story, a long lead up. He dies, he's resurrected, and then it ends. And I think, um, and that's kind of the way my book 
parched went, not because the story is over, but because the story is really just beginning, which is true of the resurrection. It's ongoing. And in a sense, we continue to complete the story or let the let the story unfold in us. I, there was another line in Parched that I wanted to ask you about because I think that uh, many people who have battled serious addiction or even just everyday compulsion can relate to. You wrote early in the book, I had always secretly suspected that everyone but me had been handed a rule book at birth. And now finally I would be at the, I would understand at the very heart of things how things worked. And I, I connected with that, uh, that, that sense of as we grow older, that we're just kind of missing something. <laughs> yes, and I think, I think that's, um, that's a very human feeling, perhaps, and it's a feeling that is kind of intensified uh, and magnified in the psyche of an alcoholic. I mean, alcoholics sometimes, we kind of jokingly, although pretty accurately say we're egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. And um, this sense of being on the outside, of, of not belonging, of being separate from, of being in exile, even though we may have, as I did, I grew up in a family with eight kids, with parents who were there, who were we had supper together around the table every single night, steady, consistent, decent, hardworking, self-sacrificing parents. Uh, so although our family had been deeply, deeply affected by alcoholism on both sides, as it turned out, but still, I always had that sense had a deep mystical sense and also a sense of being different, like sort of fatally different uh, or tainted or defective or or cast aside. So, yeah, this idea uh, that everyone else had been given the rule book. And at the same time, I wasn't I was a straight A student. I was valedictorian in my eighth grade class. I was athletic. I played the piano. I didn't. It was a it was my psyche that was out of whack. It wasn't my exterior accomplishments, all of which were you know, I had I had a lot of accomplishments, a lot of promise. I was popular enough, but still the feeling. And I think that's that's a gift because that's a sign. My kingdom is not of this world. All that exterior stuff is not going to satisfy us. And I think that's what my my soul was really telling me. But I, of course, I wouldn't know that for a very long time. Tell me more, more about your recovery process and you entered into uh, inpatient treatment and what, what did it look like from that point forward for you to get your life back? Um, well, I, went, I stayed 30 days at the treatment center and that's where um, I described this in parts. I sort of, on, on some level, um, I'd been raised a Protestant uh, in a congregational church, went to Sunday school for eight years, and I didn't have a huge God, uh, anti-God bias. I just thought God was for sort of simple, stupid people, not sophisticated, <laughs> savvy, urban folk like myself. But somehow at this treatment center, I kind of got, oh, God is this feeling in my heart, or I could at least connect that to God. When I see a blue heron, when I hear a Mozart sonata, I I begin to understand, oh, that's the sort of God consciousness. And that really was able to propel me. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't have 
some horrible, oh, I am going to refuse out of conviction to say the word God or any of that. Because in my experience, you really need a power. I mean, clearly no human power. If if intelligence and willpower and money and love even could fix alcoholism, everyone would be sober. That's not the case. Um, That kind of gratitude at having the obsession to drink removed was what sort of kept me going. I didn't for a long time. I'm very, uh, I'm an extreme introvert, meaning, I I mean, I love people and I'm also kind of an attention junkie, but I recharge in solitude. And and like zillions of people, I was just, oh, I don't join groups. I don't do stuff with other people. And But I found, I went back to Boston and I actually tried to do it alone, tried to stay sober on my own for a year and a half. And it was really um, horrible. I didn't drink again, but I was still hanging out at the bars and doing all the stuff in the bars I used to do. And I really reached a kind of emotional bottom of this is, I'm either going to kill myself or drink again. This is so spiritually corrupt. And so um, that's when I sort of cast my lot with um, a bunch of other uh, people who were trying to get sober and began to live a life that, who knew, was actually, to me, deeply Catholic that has to do with an d- examin- ongoing examination of conscience, with uh, moral inventory, with a kind of confessional aspect of telling your stuff to another human being. It's not just you and God. You somehow have to share it. I mean, we have the Sacrament of Reconciliation, of course, in the Catholic Church, um, and, and developing a prayer life and, and a relationship with God, and, uh, and then making your life about service. Um, and this is with all the terrible self-obsession and character defects and wounds and sins and blocks of any human being. Um, no, that hasn't I think that's that's why we so often don't recognize the resurrection. Um, you know, Christ Himself still bore His wounds, and uh, and I certainly still bear mine. <laughs> but that's that's the the also the surprise and the astonishment of it that God is able to work with us even in our um, continued uh, sort of brokenness and often tepidity. For many people in recovery, regardless of what route they go, spirituality or a higher power may be a kind of add-on for them, but it seems like for you that it was an absolute necessity in that spirituality, recovery, and uh, your faith are all deeply and tightly woven together. Absolutely. I mean, even I had had to admit, I say even I because I... I was a smart, I mean, I went through to law school more or less in a blackout, and I graduated near the top of my class. I mean, I have incredible willpower, incredible drive, a deep ability to memorize and follow the rules and do what I have to do. To, But none of that, that didn't get me, I could not stop drinking. I was under the thrall of a complete obsession slash compulsion, and so... Um, and I describe in Parched how really the beginning of my sobriety was I, at the end of my rope in the woods and uh, visiting some friends in Nashville, sort of fell to my knees simply out of exhaustion. And like an atheist in a foxhole, prayed the Lord's Prayer, the only prayer I really knew, the only, the first sincere prayer. 
and I said, deliver me from evil. I mean, I got it. It was a moment of clarity. I'm going to die. So I, uh, yeah, the God thing, clearly I was not able, I was not the architect, uh, the captain of my sobriety, something greater than me, some power other than me uh, was. And so, yeah, it didn't, I just never had a problem with that. In fact, my gratitude has been such that um, I think, you know, when you're really grateful, you don't want to thank an abstraction or a philosophy or an ideal. You want to thank a person, capital P. And and from that, actually, um, I think, began my search that ended in the Catholic Church. What has been the role of writing in your uh, in, in your growth as a human being? And as I as I talk about growth as a human being, I'm not simply talking about recovery, but just the development as a person. Well, huge, huge, huge. I mean, writing is my vocation, um, and it was very much tied in with my coming into the church. Um, I I got sober uh, in Boston. I very quickly got uh, married, I think within a year or two. We moved to Los Angeles, passed the bar here, began working as a lawyer. And, um, and yeah, I was working as a lawyer in Beverly Hills probably for three or four years. And I had a deep, deep uh, crisis of conscience, really, of vocation, because I had this deep call of my heart to write. I'd had it since I was six. It always been this, my secret dream. And and I just thought, um, I thought I had squandered that inheritance in the mire, like the like the prodigal son. And um, I just thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, I was 40 by this time. I was not young at all. And um, although it seems very young from my vantage point now, but um, and I and I was making money for the first time in my life. I had health insurance for the first time in my life. And this call to write came up, literally a call, vocare, that I and I just thought, oh, you've got to be kidding me, God, I'm going to quit my job and embark on this very, very precarious life of a writer. I don't even, I'd never seriously written. I realized if I didn't follow this call to write, that would be the biggest sin of my life, the biggest missing of the mark, um, that I just could not be on my deathbed and not have at least tried to do this thing. It was okay if I failed, but I had to try. So um, I ended up quitting the job. And meanwhile, I was seeking, 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 going around to different churches. So and very much not with a, not with mentors or guides also. And I'm always very touched by all the sort of shepherd parables in the Gospels because um, my sheep know my voice. And, uh, and somehow I was led inexorably to where I belonged. And you've now written, uh, I think, seven, if not eight books. And you also edit and speak and do retreats. Are you currently working on anything that's emerging uh, in the form of a book? Yes, I actually have. I just have a book out from Loyola this month called Holy Desperation. Pray as if your life depends on it. So it's a book on prayer. And I also have another memoir coming out later in the year, early next year, called Famished, which is a food memoir. Very excited about that because... Who doesn't love food and eating it with your friends? And then I'm working on, I have a couple other ideas. One is to this garden. I have this big, the, 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 I call it the garden. It's this native garden that I've 
I'm working on in the backyard of the apartment. I live in this big craftsman that's been divided into apartments. And it's just anyone who's ever had a garden knows it's multi-leveled and um, is kind of healing me, I think, in certain ways. So, and I don't really know what I'm doing. Anyway, so that would be one idea. I want to write a book about the writing life at some point, sort of what, what I've learned, what I've experienced from following my vocation. And then I'm also working on a, what I'm really doing, though, my is a book about womanhood, sort of. I mean, I hate even the word. we got to find a, I don't know, a different language. I'm, I've never really resonated, especially with the feminism, quote unquote, with which I was raised, came up in the 60s and 70s. Um, I found it to be... Uh, limiting and not nearly as radical as I myself strive for and not nearly as um, rich and full and, and truly based on love for our sisters, for our fellow women. So I have lots of thoughts on that. And, uh, and I've written a lot on it, it turns out. And so I'm sort of culling through and uh, for, I've written a book about recovering from abortion. I've, uh, I mean, that's part of my past. And um, so trying to write a book that invite, that is an invitation to see our place as women, which is so vital. I'm very, you know, we just had, we just had Easter and I was, I'm so moved by this. If you do pray the stations of the cross, the eighth station is Jesus speaks to the women. The women are the last people Christ speaks to before he falls for the third time and then is stripped of his garments and nailed to the cross. And, and I always think, yes, because he knew Christ loved women. He got women. He got what the shortcuts will take. And he knew, um, we gotta, we gotta help out. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of what I'd like to work on next. So I always have a million ideas. And I also write a weekly arts and culture column um, for Angeles News, the Archdiocesan newspaper of L.A. So it's a lot. Uh, It's a lot. And my whole being and, and existence kind of feeds in. I'm always everywhere I go, observing, pondering, listening, percolating, taking pictures, taking notes. You've also uh, been a commentator for National Public Radio. Are you still involved with NPR? No, that was a that was a lovely five year or so run where I was just uh, contacted out of the blue. I hadn't even applied by the the incredible producer Sarah Saracen, uh, with all things considered, and she'd written she'd read a piece I had published in a magazine, literary magazine called The Sun. Uh, about a retreat I had done actually the week before Ash Wednesday and um, just contacted me out of the blue and said, oh, would you like to write stories for us? So for about five years, I I probably wrote 30 or so stories, little slice of life commentaries uh, on life in L.A. They specifically wanted someone from the West Coast. So very incarnational and uh, it was a blast. But she finally moved her desk and somehow it just petered out. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 